Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow, red leather, yellow, leather, bombs over Baghdad. In the 21st century, global news is bigger, faster, more complicated, and frankly a whole lot scarier than ever. It's hard to know which stories to pay attention to, or how to make sense of it all. Don't worry too much though, because we got you covered. We're International Relations PhDs, and we're here to deliver a lighthearted dose of context and analysis to your podcast app, week after week. We're decoding global politics, so you don't have to. We are... The Elucidators. Hello, and welcome to 2020's first episode of The Elucidators. Yay! Woohoo! Happy New Year! <laughs> Happy New Year's. Uh, new New Year. <laughs> There's just one. It's 2020. That's the New Year. As always, I am your host, Steve Howley. Also, as always, with me is our co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How are you doing, Sumi? Doing well. How was your New Year's Eve, Steve? Uh, New Year's Eve was pretty sedate. New Year's Day involved a trip to Benihana with the children. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Yeah, so Benihana, for those of you who may not be familiar, uh, is a hibachi restaurant. So you have a gentleman in a kind of a crazy hat doing tricks uh, while preparing your food, uh, making uh, fried rice and, and shrimp and chicken. It's, it's quite delicious. And uh, our children were mesmerized by this guy uh, up until the point he dropped a bowl into the fried rice he was preparing and oh, broke shit. it. Yeah. Uh, and we were all just sitting at this table watching this performance, and we, we just kind of looked at him, and he paused for a second. He looked at the rice, then he looked up. Nobody said anything, and he was like, well, I guess I need to remake this. <laughs> He's like, I got most of the bowl, but there may be bits of glass in this fried rice, so uh, I'm afraid you folks will have to wait an additional 15 minutes while I prepare it. Uh, my children were enamored of this guy. They they thought it was hilarious. But uh, what was his alternative? What was he thinking about when he saw shards of glass? Like, was he like, oh man, if there's a clean break, I could just take out the big chunks? Yeah, I think that's. He was waiting to see whether anybody would call him on it, and we were waiting to see whether or not he was waiting to see if we were going to call him on it. So it was this weird standoff. Um, speaking of weird standoffs, Sumi. Yeah. Where are we this week? What's going on? <laughs> Talk about being on the verge of eating glass. We're in the Middle East. Oh, wow. I'd probably rather enjoy fried rice with a side of glass than go to Iraq, which is where we're at today, I guess. Yeah. No, that's where we're at. Yeah. this is, it's, uh, it's strange days in Iraq. For the second straight day, members of Iranian-backed uh, militias in Iraq have come to the American embassy in the green zone in Baghdad and have lit stuff on fire, chanted death to America in what looks like a made for the big screen Arab revolt against American oppressors. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the Middle Eastern version of yelling like free bird at a concert, right? It's like play the hits, death to America. Where have I heard that before? Uh, several times. Most recently, you would have heard it uh, at an American embassy. You would have heard it at, I guess it was a consulate in Benghazi, Libya. That was back in 2014. 
Mm-hmm. Benghazi. And prior to that, of course, the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979. Anyway, so we've got protesters outside the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, Iraq. Um, they went there after uh, American airstrikes killed some Iraqi militia members, right? Yeah, killed around 24, 25 Iraqi militia members who are backed by Iran and Syria and Iraq. Okay, in airstrikes. And that went down just a few days ago. And that was in response to what? Well, over the last several months, these Iranian-backed Iraqi militia groups have been attacking various uh, military places where U.S. military personnel have been either working or housed uh, mm. for for several months. They, I think one report I saw said there have been 10 of these attacks. And finally, the U.S. Uh, struck back with airstrikes. Right. And they did that after uh, one of these rockets came a little bit too close, <laughs> I guess, to one of our installations and actually killed some people. Yeah, killed an American contractor. There isn't a lot of detail out yet on what the contractor was doing there or who it was, but an American was killed, and so the Trump administration decided to strike back with these airstrikes, and they killed 25 Iranian-backed Iraqi militia members in Iraq and Syria. Got it. Okay, so we appear to be entering some kind of spiral uh, in the Middle East, which... You know, we'll talk about it, but nobody really seems to want. Before we do that, though, should we do a previously on Iraq? Because this situation really is devilishly complicated, and I feel like we need to set the table for people on Iraq. Previously. All right, Sumi, hit me with the previously on Iraq. Okay, Iraq is Americans of... I guess all ages at this point, have been aware of Iraq as a trouble spot in the Middle East. Iraq as it stands today is roughly the size and population of California. It's the same geographic area. There's 40 million people there. However, the state of California has an economic output of $3 trillion. This is very good. Iraq has an economic output of around $200 billion. Mm, so the same size, but roughly 6 to 7% of the economy. That doesn't sound great. It's not great. And part of the reason that it's not great, you'd say, well, that's surprising because we know Iraq is in the Middle East and it has a lot of oil, is because for the last 40-ish years, it has been in tough political times. Going back into the 1980s, uh, Iraq, under the leadership of the brutal dictator Saddam Hussein, fought with American assistance a really awful war with Iran. Uh, we then invaded Iraq after the Iraqis tried to take Kuwait over oil. There were airstrikes in the 90s under the Clinton administration against Iraq. And then, of course, most famously and detrimentally, in 2003 under George W. Bush, we launched the war in Iraq, which led to the decapitation, uh, the, the change in the leader of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. Now, under Saddam's like two-plus-decade two rule, there was a lot of brutality to keep down political tensions in Iraq. Okay, Iraq is a Muslim-majority state, but there are different sects of Islam. We've heard of Shias, we've heard of Sunnis, we've heard of the Kurds, right? There's different sects in, in Iraq, and there's a lot of political tensions between them. Iraq is a majority Shia state, as is Iran. Mm. However, once Saddam is gone, this opens up a big vacuum for 
Shia Iran to then call upon their ideologically similar brethren in Iraq. Who are the majority, by the way. Yeah, who are the majority in Iraq. So Iran basically says, hey, there's no Saddam. Let's go ahead and get a greater foothold in Iraq. And let's start to support some Shia militant movements in Iraq. And we're going to give these different militias, these Shia Iraqi militias, a lot of money and a lot of arms. And what they're going to do is they are going to work against the U.S. and its allies in Syria and Iraq and anywhere in the Middle East that they can Right. So this is part of the general Iranian playbook since the Islamic Revolution, right? Which is to sort of foment this militia activity and try to kick the Americans out of the Middle East. And since we got to Iraq, uh, these militias have been really killing Americans in fairly large numbers up to a certain point, at which point we actually became on the same side for a while, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, with the rise of the Sunni terrorist organization ISIS, we found ourselves, we the Americans, found ourselves in common cause with these Shia Iranian-backed militias. So during the ISIS struggle, both the Americans and these Shia militia in Iraq and Syria were fighting Sunni ISIS. Got it. And we've talked about those guys in the past, too, after... um... We found and we've located and killed al Baghdadi, who was the caliph of, of the ISIS organization. Yeah, according to him and not many others. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The, his his uh, devotees. But um, ISIS is no longer a going concern, right? Which means that these Shia militias have reverted to kind of their base state of attacking the Americans and trying to drive them out of Iraq, right? Yeah, that's correct. Here's a slightly bonus um, previously on on Iran and the U.S. A double previous. Oh, yeah, that's right. Bonus previous. So, I mean, the very short version of this is for 40 years, there have been tensions between Iran and the U.S. Ever since an Islamic revolution deposed an American-backed leader, uh, some would say dictator, in Iran, the Islamic Iranian revolutionaries took siege of the American embassy in Tehran, held hostages for 444 days. Chanting death to America in front of the American embassy. Burning flags, doing the whole thing. And uh, this was a very rough time. But since then, to varying degrees, different American presidential administrations have wanted to change the regime in Iran. This is part of the reason why Iran naturally has found reason to try and fight American intervention and influence within the Middle East. <clears throat> so this is kind of where we're at right now. Iranian-backed Shia Iraqis are fighting Americans, and Americans are mostly taking it, but they fought back, and now we have this big demonstration at the American embassy in Baghdad, which is reminiscent of several previous very bad times for the U.S. in the greater Middle East. Got it. Well, thank you for that magisterial summary of what four decades of extremely complex middle eastern history oh no there's more <laughs> oh, there's way more than that and we'll get into it um shall we take a quick break and then get into more of the particulars of this mesopotamian madness this week hello valued listeners if you like what you're hearing on the elucidators please do us a solid and tell everyone you know about the podcast if you really love us please also feel free to rate us five stars on your podcast store be it iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever, and write us a glowing review, because we rely on your positive feedback and word of mouth to grow and improve. 
And if you have comments or questions, you can email us at allonewordtheelucidators at gmail.com or tweet us at the underscore elucidators. We may even answer your question on the show. And we're back. Um, Sumi, before we broke off for our commercial, you were saying that these two countries, Iran and the U.S., have basically been at loggerheads for decades. And we've talked about that in other episodes. But my question is, what's driving this latest bout of bad blood between the two powers in Iraq specifically? Well, look, there was one notable time during the last 40 years where there was a significant diplomatic effort, a substantive diplomatic effort to make things better between the U.S. and Iran. And that came under the Obama administration and the now infamous Iran nuclear deal. The short version of the Iran nuclear deal or the JCPOA is that it bought 10 to 15 years to keep Iran from becoming a nuclear state. Reports were that Iran was on the verge of becoming nuclear. It had been trying for decades to become a nuclear state. If it became a nuclear state, this would destabilize the Middle East even more than it already is. However, after Obama leaves office, President Trump comes in and uh, working with his Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, they have withdrawn us from the JCPOA. We're out of the Iran nuclear deal, which means a reversion of really hard sanctions on Iran. Quote unquote, maximum pressure. That's right. They're calling it a maximum pressure campaign and the Iranians have responded to maximum pressure with, wait for this good branding, maximum resistance. Oh, I like it. Oh, that's so salty. Mm. Almost as salty as Benihana. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so this is basically where we're at. Under President Trump, there's been an economic warfare of sorts against the Iranians, and they are feeling it. You know, uh, we did an episode earlier that spoke to this. Sanctions have been hurting the Iranians so bad. They have to generate revenue. They right going into the winter. There was a massive hike on uh, fuel, fuel for driving. And this led to protests all over the country and the deaths of hundreds of Iranians. This is also, by the way, one of the big problems of Iranian foreign policy, which is, hey, we can't really take care of all of our domestic problems. And so regular Iranians are pissed about having to pay way more than they should at the pump to get gas. And now they're they're going abroad and they're paying for all these militia in Iraq and Syria to mess with the U.S. What the hell? This is a problem. Why are you got? Why is the Ayatollah doing this? And at the same time, the Iraqis, who are especially young Iraqis, who are in this state of 40 million people where there aren't a lot of good, uh, good meaningful jobs coming up, have also been taking to the streets for months to try and push Iran out of Iraq. And this led to the resignation of the still prime minister. Uh, Mahdi. Now he's still a prime minister because he's just in a caretaker role. But long story short on Iran, the U.S. doesn't like Iran. Iraq is torn about whether or not it likes Iran. Many Iranians don't like Iran. And yet Iran is still going to Iran. Dude, that was a mouthful. Wow. (sighs) Okay, so obviously a very confused situation. And you've highlighted the fact that there have been protests in Iran and Iraq, uh, violent ones, where hundreds, if not thousands of people have been gunned down in the streets in both countries. Yeah. Disapproving of Iranian foreign policy. Yes. Um, However, the Iranians are doing what they do 
And the United States is also doing what it does, which is to try to apply maximum pressure to the Iranians. And so the Iranians have sort of progressively been ratcheting up their own sort of pressure on the United States over time, right? Yeah, that's right. And we've talked about some of this in the past, like they're blowing up the Saudi oil refinery a couple of months ago to demonstrate that should the United States and Iran come to blows in like an actual war, shooting war, uh, the Iranians could take a good chunk of the world's oil off the market and spike prices going into an election year for President Trump. This would be very, very bad for his reelection prospects. Do you think Trump knows this? Listen, man, there's a lot of criticisms of the current president of the United States, but no one, and I mean nobody, says that that dude is not constantly aware of how he is perceived in in, in, America, in American politics and his reelection chances. Yeah, it seems to be his only priority. I mean, also saving his neck in uh, the Senate for impeachment as well, right? And this is kind of another interesting note because the Republican senators that he's going to need for the impeachment proceedings, which are going to start probably any day now, um, depending on what Nancy Pelosi does, a lot of them have not really appreciated his, shall we say, unorthodox foreign policy moves in the Middle East, like trying to remove troops from Syria uh, and pulling the rug out from under our allies there, trying to evacuate Afghanistan, trying to get rid of the troops in Iraq, in fact. Uh, these have all been extremely unpopular moves for the more, shall we say, heterodox political establishment in the United States, right? Yeah. it's Or orthodox, not heterodox. No, look, here's the long and the short on this shit. The president wants out of American forever wars. This is not a courageous stance to take. Everybody wants out of forever wars. But how to get out of Afghanistan, how to get out of the Middle East has bedeviled three straight administrations. And the Trump administration, to for in furtherance of my point, has actually increased the number of troops abroad, but you would never know it from the way the president talks about it. And the super messy way in which he said, we're just pulling troops out of Syria, and then that created the mess that we now have with Turkey and Russia in Syria. And this is part of the problem. And here's the bottom line on it. There isn't a clearly discernible strategy on Iraq. There isn't a clearly discernible American strategy on Syria. There isn't a clearly discernible medium and long-term strategy on Iran. And yet, here we are making moves, responding to things in ways that we should not necessarily have done so without any conception of what the next two to ten steps are going to be. Yeah, so let's drill down on that a little bit, right? Because Trump does have a clear strategy. It is to exit the Middle East. It's, you know, something that he promised in his 2016 campaign. And he has done his darndest to actually pull troops out of the Middle East. He hasn't necessarily done a great job um, in, in terms of actually fulfilling that promise um, without damaging American interests or even his own political interests. And in fact, he hasn't succeeded in getting American troops out of the Middle East. But it's still clear to me anyway, that he wants to do it. And I think most people would agree with that. Another thing that he wants to do is that he wants to squeeze Iran until their head pops off, right? The problem with these two things is that they are actually in direct opposition to one another. It's really difficult to squeeze Iran just using sanctions while also 
exiting the Middle East and not having any troops there because the Iranians can't respond economically, but they can respond militarily, and they're doing it. They're doing it by sort of progressively ratcheting up the pressure. They're provoking the U.S. a little bit and then waiting to see what Trump will do in response. Then they're provoking a little bit more. Uh, they're waiting. They're provoking a little bit more. And they have a plan, and they're sticking to it. They're going to figure out what Trump's pain threshold is for the 2020 election. They're going to figure out whether he can actually stand the temperature of the water that he's standing in, how much he really wants to hold the Iranian's feet to the fire, which of his objectives are actually most important. They assume that his most important objective is to get reelected and to basically save his skin in the Senate, right? Which means, you know, he cannot have oil prices spike and he can't embroil the United States in another Middle Eastern war. He can't have U.S. troops start dying in Iraq and Syria, which will certainly happen if Iran and the United States get into a shooting war. So something has to give for Trump. And it's the Iranians are betting that it will be the maximum pressure campaign and they can get a new deal on more favorable terms, right? That's why they're doing what they're doing. That makes sense to me. What Trump is doing doesn't make any sense to me because his two goals uh, to exit the Middle East while also, I guess, trying to change the regime in Iran, or at least change its behavior by conducting economic warfare against them, are in direct opposition to one another. And it just doesn't make any damn sense. Look, uh, the maximum pressure campaign has benefited folks in the Middle East that are anti-Iranian. So this is the Israelis and this is the Saudis. They have benefited from it. They can continue to support a Trump Middle Eastern foreign policy. The fear is that if Trump loses, re-election or is impeached <laughs> yeah okay so if trump leaves office either at the ballot or through a senatorial vote then what happens to middle eastern policy the presumption is that a democrat would come in and would make uh would make middle eastern policy look a lot more like obama's which would mean trying to find a diplomatic solution to iranian tensions so iran can continue right now Look, it's a coin toss. It's a coin toss on who's going to win the 2020 election. And obviously, we don't know who Trump will run against yet. But the Iranian hope is, well, we can continue to prick the U.S. It doesn't really cost us that much. Okay, you kill 24 Iraqis. That's not... Yeah, they don't give a shit. Whatever. They have a million of these guys. Right. So then we hope that a Democrat comes in and we can work with a Democratic administration, an American Democratic administration, to figure something else out. It should also be said that the, uh, the JCPOA was popular with American allies, let's say the French, and the way in which the Trump administration withdrew has only caused greater tensions with our allies. So again, a Democrat coming in would presumably want to improve allies, our relations with our allies. President Trump just doesn't seem to have much use for allies unless the allies are going to do exactly what he wants when he wants it. It's, it's a very weird dynamic. It's a very weird and incoherent dynamic that doesn't even serve his own interests. <laughs> like, that's, that's the weirdest part of it. <laughs> this is the thing of like, you know, okay, so you talk about, this is what I'm saying when they, they haven't considered the next two to 10 steps. Say that Trump gets what his wildest rhetoric wants, which is a different regime in Iran. Now, the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard, which has a lot of money and a lot of arms, you have them without the Ayatollah in charge 
what do you think is going to happen except an Iranian civil war? And why do you think that that's going to stay contained in Iran and it's not going to spill over into Iraq? And then this might end up bringing in Saudi Arabia with all of their American-made weapons. Like, by no means am I advocating for the Ayatollah. I'm just saying it doesn't appear that there's a strategy here. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and and not just a lack of a strategy, but... um... So a lack of a strategy might be okay if if you're not actually doing anything like actively deleterious to national and your own political interests, right? Trump is actually it's not just a lack of a strategy, it's that he's actually working against his own interests and our own national interests by being so completely incoherent and trying to serve these two masters that he clearly just came up with in front of one of his rallies um, without ever stopping to consider whether or not they made sense in combination with one another. And what we have now is instead of a strategy or even no strategy, uh, we have peanut butter and onions. It's like the worst possible combination of, uh, I guess, tactics that don't make sense and actively harm our interests and his own political interests. And it's a pretty unfortunate situation. Yeah. So this is the crazy thing. So as as we know, President Trump has been willing to meet with uh, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un several times. And what has he gotten for it, except that the North Koreans are now talking about having a new kind of weapon that they will reveal at some point. ICBM. <laughs> yeah, which is to say that Trump diplomacy on North Korea has not succeeded. Okay. And... This is now creating what could be if they if the North Koreans can create an ICBM, an interconnect intercontinental ballistic missile, and put a nuclear warhead on it, which is to say they could blow up San Francisco or LA where we are. <laughs> this is super bad. Let's just say San Francisco, okay? Okay, yeah. Uh, this is this is super terrific, terribly bad news in assessing Trump's Trump's face to face diplomacy. And in the meantime, this fella has done absolutely. The complete ignorance of using diplomacy when it comes to Iran, when it's very clear that the Iranians would welcome a lot of diplomatic initiatives, that this is an opportunity to move stuff, is just crazy. He's created two international crises by over over using too much diplomacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is the problem. The, Trump has created, there was no 9-11 for Trump. Trump has managed to create two of his own crises. One in North Korea by using too much doo-doo diplomacy, and one in Iran by not using nearly enough diplomacy. Right, and just basically trying to step on their neck and pop their head off with these sanctions, and not even wanting to talk to them. The Iranians are desperate to talk. You're totally right. That's why they're doing this ratcheting move. It's like cause a little, little bit of pain and then pause. Do you guys want to talk? No? Okay. We're going to do something a little bit worse. Do you want to talk now? No? Okay. Like, they're trying to communicate. They're trying to negotiate. They're trying to negotiate, and they're they're using the language of force to do it, but it's like, it's very measured, rationalized force, right? They're not going out and just launching bombs and killing people willy-nilly. Like, there was a precision strike on those Saudi oil facilities that didn't kill anybody, and they waited for a response from Trump. We were apparently, quote unquote, locked unloaded to respond, and then Trump called it off at the last minute. So it's like, okay, what's next? Um, we're going to have our Iraqi militias start launching rockets near the Americans, not even like towards them, not even trying to hit them, but just like getting closer and closer, right? Eventually, you're going to get burned, right? Because the Iranians are not, you know, they're hardly like paragons of competence, as you've said, 
but they're more competent than Trump. And, you know, they're waiting on the line for somebody to start talking to them because they can only assume that Trump actually wants to talk to them and he needs to talk to them. What they don't realize is that Trump doesn't know what his own interests are. He doesn't understand how his interests connect to what is currently going on in the Middle East. Like, he, he just has no grasp of how these things connect to one another. So they're holding an empty phone. And this is the kind of situation that can end up in a war that nobody wants. Yeah, look, uh, the day after Trump pulled out of the JCPOA, I went to my local Trader Joe's, and you know how they have the, um, the, the free coffee and snack uh, stand? Absolutely. Yeah, it's like kindergarten for people that like Trader Joe's. Anyway, I love that shit. <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's two old guys talking. One is a customer and one's an employee. And the, the employee is a Trump supporter. And he's trying to defend the move to, uh, to pull out of the JCPOA. And the customer is clearly not a Trump fan. And the employee says to, to the customer, he says, well, what's it going to cost us if we pull out of the JCPOA? It's not going to change your life or not going to change my life. And the customer yells super loud. He goes, are you kidding me? The Trump, the Trump just cost us peace in our time. And I was like, okay, that's, that's, that's a bit, uh, a bit much. And I, I didn't think it would come to that point, but this is where we're at. We're close Middle East washers are like, my God, are we really about to go to war with Iran over something that could at least be staved off with some basic talks? It's possible. Yeah, so it's it's possible. And like thinking about next time on Iraq-Iran, because this is where the shit's going down, right? Um, there are two possibilities. One is that we continue to miscommunicate ourselves into a war that neither side wants, but will fight. If push comes to shove, the Iranians will fight and we will hit them and then they'll hit us and we'll hit them harder and we'll end up bombing them. And they're going to kill a bunch of our troops who are still in the Middle East. And one of two things will happen. We're going to add troops to the Middle East to fight a land war against Iran, which is crazy. That's even crazier than the other thing that would happen, which is that we evacuate all of our troops from the Middle East <laughs> in shame with our tail between our legs. <laughs> Even though I'm sure Trump would come up with some story um, saying, no, uh, we didn't like these bases anyway. They didn't have solid gold toilets. So they, we all have to go back to the U.S. It's a real possibility. It, it, you know, another thing that could happen is that cooler heads prevail and the Iranians, as they seem to be doing, they have asked the protesters, apparently, to back off for the time being. And they are. They have, um, I guess, moved across the river from the embassy com compound. So they lit a bunch of stuff on fire, chanted death to America. Uh, all of that ended up on the internet for their little Instagram video or whatever it was. Uh, and now they're back across the river waiting for further instructions. <laughs> so they're doing this thing again where it's like, call and wait for a response. Call and wait for a response, right? There could be a response, which is, all right, like I'm Donald Trump. I'm in big trouble domestically, politically on a number of different fronts. The election is looking very far from sewn up. And on top of that, I need to not have a foreign policy disaster in the Senate right now because the Republican Senate actually cares a lot about foreign policy. So I need help. Um, you guys, I hate you guys, but we're kind of in like a, like, a, like a death embrace here. So help me out. That's what they're waiting for, right? And maybe he'll do that. Maybe he'll climb down. It, it, like we're waiting to see right now 
whether or not that call is going to come through with the Iranians holding uh, the, the phone on the other end. And like what they've gotten so far is is a dial tone, right? Nothing. Yeah. I'm going to take a swing at the next time on Iraq. Uh, it's going to get messier. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's true. I mean, look, look at uh, Iraq is the Kurds want their own state in the north. Mm. There are youth in the street that want Iran out. There are militia that want Iran in. There's Sunnis that are trying to survive this this kind of disastrous mess, and they have Saudi Arabian support. Don't forget Islamic State. They're still around. Yeah, they're still. Iraq is suffering from a crisis of sovereignty. They can't control (laughs) their own state. They don't have law enforcement. I mean, for Christ's sake, the bottom line on these militias are there are Iranian-controlled militias. Okay, they're populated with Iraqi citizens, but there are Iranian-controlled militias operating with impunity in Iraq. Yeah, so I remember in school, like during the last decade, learning about what was going on in Iraq, and times were very bad, very, very bad for the United States and the Iraqis uh, at that time. And I remember my professor saying, look, the only guy that could actually make a state out of Iraq was Saddam Hussein because he was just such a fucking bastard and he killed everybody who tried to stand up to him. It took that type of guy to make Iraq. And without him, Iraq is probably better off as three states, maybe four, right? And that's kind of what we're seeing now. We're seeing Iraq spin out of control. Uh, As long as the United States wants to devote 150,000 troops full time to keeping it together, okay. But we don't have that many people there anymore. I think we have, what, 5,000 left? Yeah. So it's it's just spinning apart, you know. It's like one of those Iranian centrifuges that blew itself up during the uh, the Stuxnet virus, (laughs) which I think we also talked about. It rocks in bad shape, man, and it's not going to get better. There are weeks because it's, it's not—it's not an actual state. <laughs> like... No, this, this is like this is what international relations folks talk about, like the difference between nations and states. Iraq is a state with several different nations in it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's Iraq. All right, we may be back next week talking about uh, the Iran-U.S. war, right, of 2020. I think that's probably less likely, and we'll be talking about um, Chairman uh, Kim Jong-un's special uh, holiday gift for Trump instead. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that we're going to return in Iraq, Iran, U.S. stuff to where we were in early December 2019. I think we're now going to be talking. God, I hope you're right, (laughs) because this could go very bad. It could, but nobody wants it to, but everybody keeps pushing it that way. Yep, that's, that's how we roll. All right, we're out. That's it. Later. Bye. Hey, everybody, this is Steve with a late-breaking news update. So uh, we left this episode saying that this conflict between Iran and the United States and Iraq could go one of two ways, the first being a return to the status quo, uh, everybody takes a step back from the brink, and the second being basically a spiral into a greater war between the United States and Iran in the Middle East. Uh, I think we have new information about which direction we're headed, President Trump has apparently authorized a precision drone strike on a major Iranian military figure, General Qasem Soleimani. Now, Soleimani was uh, apparently responsible for all of Iran's provocations leading up to uh, this confrontation. So uh, the Iranian uh, drone strike on the Saudi oil refineries, as well as the militia rocket attacks that killed an American contractor, uh, which is what we were talking about in this episode. Um, And beyond that, he has been active for the last 
roughly 30 years of this conflict between the U.S. and Iran and is directly responsible for the deaths of hundreds of American military members in various conflicts <laughs> over over the years, uh, to say nothing of the Israelis. Um, but we went ahead and killed him. Uh, so once again, the message has finally been delivered to the Iranians from the Trump administration. The message is for war. And uh, we've never posted an update, <laughs> an emergency update to a show like this, but uh, this is such a big deal that uh, I felt like we had to... Uh, tack it on to the end of the show. Uh, so we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we should certainly anticipate some kind of Iranian military response in the near future. Uh, and we're going to see whether the Trump administration is ready to uh, cash the checks that it has written here. Uh, let's hope that they are and that the Israelis and the Saudis are ready for action too, because things seemingly are about to kick off in the greater Middle East. And I'm pretty darn sure that we'll be talking about this at length next week on The Elucidators.